Welcome to Ramble City. Is all art in some ways manipulative? Isn't entertainment just another means to educate? Today's guest is Wesley Enoch, a writer and director that has helped shape some of Australia's most iconic and celebrated Indigenous theatre productions, including The Sapphires, the true story turned play by Tony Briggs that became a film earning $20 million at the Australian box office. It's always a real personal treat to hear about the history and background to an iconic or landmark piece of art, but this conversation showed me the different philosophies and methodologies every individual takes to shape the messages and causes they are passionate about. How art can be, as Wesley suggests here, a Trojan horse for change. Wesley Enoch has worked as Artistic Director of Queensland Theatre Company, the Sydney Festival, as a consultant for the 2018 Gold Coast Commonwealth Games. His many original plays are celebrated pieces of Australian theatre, and we chat from his office during his time at the Sydney Festival in 2019. Yes, this is another from the vault, folks. We ramble through his early days plying his trade as a writer, his mentorship with Nick Enright, the Australian playwright and director, and how this all infused his work and life as a director. But it all kind of comes back to the sapphires today, folks. The story of four women that travelled to Vietnam to sing for troops in 1968. A true story that turned into a play, that turned into a film, that inspired and educated many of us, without us probably even realising it. My name is Bradley McCaw, and this is Ramble City. Welcome to Ramble City. A lot of the things for me around something like the Sapphires is when it was a play, because I only yeah. did the play version, obviously not the film. And this notion of when Tony Briggs was saying, I've got this play, I want to do this, and doing the workshops and things, what interested me interested me most was this idea of the Trojan horse, that a lot of the shows that I do, you talk about the politics, you know, Seven yeah. Stages of Grieving or Stolen or oh, any number of shows, Black Diggers eventually, that you're talking about big ideas about Indigenous politics and you are sometimes with a big hammer, a big sledgehammer, hitting people with the head, over the head about this idea of the politics. And something like the Sapphires was was very much the Trojan horse. The inside the, the the wigs and the sequin dresses and the feather boas and the Motown kind of music is a message of here are these young Aboriginal women in 1968, uh, well, or thereabouts, going to Vietnam, which was a colonial war. Yeah. And this notion of their own sense of cultural identity in those two places. So so for me, when when we started to look at that particular work, it was how do we keep strong the message inside the piece while still making it incredibly palatable and interesting and and quirky and people you know when people got up at the end of that the stage show and you would get up yeah. and uh, and we're talking about 2004 by the time it eventually got out there we'd workshopped it for about two years leading up to that and this notion of at the end, there's the, the mega mix that we put at the end so that everyone's dancing and <laughs> chanting and all that yeah. stuff. And at the end, they go away saying, wasn't that great, the story about four Aboriginal women going yeah. to Vietnam to entertain the troops during the war? And immediately it sets your mind in a different kind of mindset about the participation of Aboriginal people um, during that time period. Yeah. And, and 
that then if you put, piece that together with the 67 referendum and then the notion of you know the the designing of the Aboriginal flag in 1972 and and you start to look at Aboriginal history you start to go wow wasn't that an amazing thing to do and then you see the women who in the present day and you go you realize they're they're in Tourism Australia and running medical services and legal services, you know, they're these incredibly powerful women. And you start to realize that, well, or maybe you, it, it, you know, to, to, to the educated eye, to the person who wants to know about it, they go, oh my God, this, that there is this connection between Aboriginal suffrage, Aboriginal um, uh, advancement and the arts, and that arts and culture are the center for Aboriginal people. And of course, this is natural. Da, da, da. So for me, like the Sapphires was one of those situations where a number of philosophies came into play for me. Mm. Um, as a director, yes, I've got my skills and stuff, but the, the you try to tell messages to the world in a way that they keep listening to it. Yeah. Often when you've got really hard stories to tell, and, and God knows there's been lots of hard stories to tell from Aboriginal Australia, yeah. but the moment you, you only give an audience the hard edge of that, you know, if you don't use uh, the lightness of, of humour, you know, or the, the in, uh, musicals and, and beehives, if, if you don't give people these other edges that keeps them going, you, you realise they shut down on you. Mm. And sure, they might take it, but they take it like they're medicine. Whereas if you keep them open, you can actually get inside their hearts and minds and inside their souls, and they open up and retain the information in a totally different way. Mm. Now, that all sounds incredibly manipulative. But it's no, a, no, but well, well but, maybe you know, it does, I don't know. Well, but let's, let's theatre directing or theatre writing, yeah. it's all about manipulation. Yeah. It's all about saying, here is the human experience and here are uh, different ways of experiencing the world as we know it as, as artists, yeah. as observers of the world. And we, we cut and paste and stitch together experiences so the audience goes on a bit of a journey, yeah. not just narratively, lockstep, this happens to this, this happens to this, but how do you find an emotional kind of through line? And, and something like the sapphires where you want to go, okay, when's the right time to hit them? And I've got this philosophy, which I, which I call the rubber band philosophy, which you, you pull them in one, one extreme direction, you let them go and you snap them straight into the next one. So in fact, you can find yourself laughing and feeling exuberant and excited and then the very next scene you you're able to plunge them down into some incredibly deep emotional well and that you, they then as an audience feel this journey and i remember people talking about the film version of the of the sapphires and going oh wesley are you thinking about doing that and i was going no it's not my thing yeah because i value the analog i value the live experience in a way because when you, when you feel an audience working together, when they laugh together, when they, you can feel a pin drop, you can hear that pin drop when some deep emotional thing's happening or you know, that act of listening, you don't get that kind of reward in the cinema in mm. the same way. Uh, cinema is not given the same kind of um, prestige, I guess, or the commitment. Like you paid maybe 15 bucks, 20 bucks to see it, People on texting as they're next to you. <laughs> People feel like they can answer a phone call next to you. Whereas the discipline of the live performance where you've paid more than that and you've dedicated your time to go there, it's not like going to the theatre is not always convenient for you, mm -hmm. but you're there because you want to be there. 
and you then have to think about long arcs of thoughts, not the short, sharp things. I like that because the audience then is ready to find, oh well, communion, find this idea of the, um, the congregation. Mm. You know, and I use those, those terms because of the religious connotations to it. Yeah. That as artists, we're almost in a shamanistic relationship with an audience. You wanting to place them in different emotional states or take them on journeys and let them, you know, gasp or laugh or take them through all that stuff so that they feel stretched mm. a little bit. I mean, I remember someone telling me about the notion of catharsis um, in the Greek sense of it all, where the performer on stage is in many ways the, the champion. And they, as an, audience, as an audience member, the performer takes your soul on a journey mm. and they go through heartache and, and revenge or any, any manner of kind of extreme emotional situations so that you, the audience member, don't have to go through it. But through that kind of mirror neuron, this notion of watching others go through it, you then experience some version of it and have those experiences as part of your emotional vocabulary as a human being. So that, you know, be it the, the concepts being talked about, the emotions being experienced, the, the, the strategies that characters use to get what they want or to deal with the world, that you are absorbing those in that experience, which I love. And then at the end, the performer releases your soul back to you and that you clap, you kind of snap that connection between the performer and you and you, you, let, them, you let it go. And for me, that's really important. Like I think that, that if we believe that we are custodians of people's souls, I mean, heavy, heavy shit. <laughs> you know, it's heavy shit. Just a, just a light sort of... Uh, yeah, but, yeah, you know, yeah. but if we believe that there are whatever, 500, 600, how many people in a room, yeah. that you are entrusted with their souls... It's an overwhelming responsibility. Well, but that's our job. Yeah. That's what we get. And that's why you have to do your best all the time. Yeah. Because if you misstep, if you don't do that job well, if you kind of... Um, drop their souls in the middle and do all that kind of stuff, you potentially damage these people or or they lose trust in you or they don't have faith that you can take them on it, this journey again and all that stuff. So, so you actually have to take it incredibly seriously. Yeah. And film for me is sometimes a little too easy. It's one of those things that the editor and the director and the writer, I was, I was told that, that film gets written three times on the page, in the camera, and in the editing suite. <laughs> and in the end, the performer isn't made responsible for carrying those souls. Other people are. Yeah. So that's why you can have really amazing performances in pretty dud films because, you know, the performer isn't, hasn't got that visceral imp um, important relationship with the performer, it's a, with the audience. It's all everyone else yeah. in film. And I love sitting in the theatre and hearing the joke just land and everything everything goes erupts in laughter in this case or that moment as i was saying before where um a word resonates and you can feel it kind of you know vibrate through an audience as they they understand what's going on yeah. or that gasp moment when something is revealed that they didn't know and they've gone on that journey i have here's a, here's an admission i love going to 
um, high school musicals. Really? You go to a high school musical and no matter how good the production is, it cannot be great. <laughs> you know, it just yeah, cannot. Yeah. It, it hasn't got the it, it hasn't got the elements to be great. Performances are kind of uneven. Uh, the local band is doing the music. Um, the sets are slapped together by, yeah. the, by the art students, and so it, even even if there's one or two great performers in there, it's not consistent enough. So it can't be great. And what it reveals for me to me is really um, um, formula, structure, um, the 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 bare bones of each lockstep kind of narrative point. Um, it re it reveals to me a kind of it like watching B grade movies. B grade movies, fantastic learning tools, because all they are are structure. Yeah. And watching a high school musical, you end up going, oh, here we go. Here's the B storyline kicking in. Oh, I can hear that musical theme coming back again because it hasn't got massive orchestrations. They're as simple yeah. as it can be. Yeah. You know, and you're starting to listen to, you know, how the music's going in and out and you go, and you're watching the masters because we are talking about, you know, I don't know, Rodgers and Hammerstein or, you know. Any of those ones that are still being put on yeah, all the yeah. time. They're going to yeah. be, they're timeless. Yeah. Well, and, and, and they're the things that are available to them. Yeah, you know, the, the high school. I mean, God, God knows how they do Les Mis and things, but they do, or Phantom oh, yeah. of the Opera. And Wicked's coming now. Wicked. Every man <laughs> his dog's going to be doing Wicked. Can you imagine? <laughs> but, but this notion, too, of uh, that, that what you can see outside of the excellence of the, the big professional productions, yeah. you see how they make them mm. uh, uh, because it's all revealed. There's nothing hiding it. There's no click tracks. And the clunk you, of it, you go, oh, there oh, it is. Oh, there it is. Oh, yeah, that's yeah. where it is. Oh, right. Yeah. Okay. And you go, and they're great learning tools uh, because the audience is there. The, actually, the audience is very enthusiastic because they're there to, to watch their, their son or daughter or, or... Third tree from the left. Whoever is <laughs> doing what. And they're already a sympathetic audience, so they're not going to walk out or they're not going to begrudge the yeah. show. Yeah. So you can still stay positive. But as someone who's learning it or watching it, so during the Sapphires, I would go to every school musical. Did I you? Oh, I love them. Wow. Love them. And just to go... Oh, okay. How do you do this transition? Oh, you did this like that. Oh, that's terrible, isn't it? <laughs> what would I have done? And so you, you start to become the egotist. Yeah. Well, I've heard people say that too. It's it's uh, go and see like new developments too and new things because yeah. you will learn far more than seeing the ones that are already up. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And and you know, when you've got all the resources in the world, it better be shit hot to be honest. That's true. You know, sure things can be kind of you know brand new works and all that stuff but when you've got the resources there is no reason why it shouldn't be amazing yeah um so you know i love all that stuff so was it, so you talked about that trojan horse was there and you said that that was uh, did you say that that was kind of a, a turning point I'm, I'm using not the words you use but uh, in your career in, in advocacy in the right word but you were always very well you know telling those stories that were you know need to be told but yeah was was that the the kind of thinking of kind of putting it in a different frame, or it just sort of happened that way? Did that turn in any way towards, uh, I guess, leading into to being more of a leader in that sort of frame, or was that always something you were passionate about? Oh God, no one ever thinks they're a leader. You That's know, true. That's know, true. That's true. And we're talking about fifteen years ago. 
yeah. that I was doing this. Yeah. You know, I'm 50 this year. Yeah. So someone who is 35. That's your second admission. We've got three coming. Oh, no, I'm <laughs> that was my first admission. Yeah. And I watch high school musicals. Yeah, yeah great. your words. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Happy to go. Happy to do it. But, uh, you know, so I'm 50 this year. And so 15 years ago, I was 35. Mm. And this notion of um, seeing the world unfold and different opportunities. So I'd, I'd done a musical called The Sunshine Club, which... Um, I was commissioned from the Queensland Theatre Company to write. I wrote the book and the lyrics, and John Rogers wrote the music. Mm. Love John Rogers. Um, and it was based on the idea of post-World War II um, dance clubs uh, where Aboriginal and non-Aboriginal people could dance together. Wow. Remembering that we're talking, you know, in the 40s, 50s, um, there were still curfews for Aboriginal people that couldn't come into the centre of the city. Um, in, in Brisbane in particular, the boundary streets were the boundary of of when, where Aboriginal people could come into the city or not. Well, the river and the boundary streets and Spring Hill. So the boundary got its name from that very well, process? Well, boundary, no. boundary is actually the, the city boundaries. Oh, okay. But it became then the that boundary through which you could yeah. not get, enter into the city after dark and stuff. Um, and so these dance clubs were established because Aboriginal and non-Aboriginal servicemen fought together. And when they came back, they wanted to maintain their friendships and things, and yeah. so these places were set up. And so it was a great um, great vibe for a musical, so we built this piece called The Sunshine Club, uh, which is in a d direct response to Cloudland. Oh, wow. So Cloudland is here, but where we go to dance is it's at the Sunshine, Sunshine Club. Club. Yeah, which, uh, unbeknownst to me, in Darwin, there was a place called the Sunshine Club. I didn't know that at the time. Any connection to the story? In, no, 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 not, not in a literal way, but did it reminisce well, just by chance? Like a bit by chance, because this was uh, pretty much a national phenomena. In yeah. in uh, Perth, it was called the Kuperu Club. Well, that was the one there, and the one in Sydney, oh, the Booker T Jones Club, I think it was. Oh. Anyway, it was a, again a place. Oh, don't quote me on that one, but it's something. Yeah, yeah, there. yeah. But these clubs were all over the place, and they were. They're part of part of the furniture kind of thing. So this was this was one of the things, and it was because I was working with Nick Enright. Um, this goes way back now. We're talking in the mid '90s. Nick Enright had come to do a play at the Queensland Theatre Company, and Good Works it was called, and he uh, great play. Play happened, and then there was kind of you know drinks and things, nibbles in that cascade. Uh, uh, courtyard thing at, at QPAC and I'm you know at this time I'm 25 ish And so I bowl up to Nick Enright, you know, playwright, extraordinaire, yeah. um, writer of musicals like Boy From Oz and Venetian Twins and all the <laughs> other things. And I just rock up to him and say, oh, Nick, I really enjoyed your writing. Not the play so much, not the production so much, but I can see what you're doing with this and this and that and that. And I kind of talk through my reading of the play and what it was trying to say to me. And I said, thank you so much for your work. And I turned to walk away and Nick said, oh, no, 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 you can't go now. Tell me about you. Who are you? Where do you come from? What are you talking about? And we uh, ha had that conversation that night. 
And then um, when, I, when I would come to Sydney, I would stay in his house. He would say, come and stay in my spare room and we'd, and we'd talk some more. And eventually he sent me a, uh, a video of the Cooparoo Club, which was a documentary about this club in, in wow. Perth. And I, because I knew the stories from Brisbane, I said, oh, we had something similar here. We had this, da, da, da. And he said, well, this is a really good idea. We should pitch this to Robert Nevin, who was the artistic director of Queensland Theatre Company at the time. I was working at Coemba Jadara, which was the Aboriginal Theatre Company. And, um, and I said, oh, why would she be interested in this? And so we pitched the idea and Robin went, this is fabulous. Yeah. You should do this. And so over like a four-year period, uh, 97, 98, 99, yeah, around that, let's call that a three-year period, three-and-a-half-year period, um, I started to work with John Rogers. Uh, I, I got directing gigs with the Queensland Theatre Company as we built my knowledge of how the Queensland Theatre Company worked. And understanding the audience a bit more. So Robin would give me gigs to direct and I'm building up from there. And then yeah. I'm writing all the time this musical that we're doing workshops and things. And eventually um, it gets to the stage where we're putting it on and we premiere it in Cairns, go Cairns, Mackay, Townsville, out of order, and then Brisbane, and then eventually to the Sydney Opera House. And this idea of a musical, which was not new at the time, when you think about Brand New Day mm. and you think about Corrugation Road, yeah. but um, this was the first time ever that we had um, uh, Wayne Blair performed on the Opera House stage because he played a role called Dave Daylight. It was fantastic. He was, and he still calls himself the Gannon Man or the Dave Daylight. <laughs> you know, every now and then he's fascinating. Or Ursula Jovic performing oh. in the drama at the Opera House for the first time. She'd done a couple of other things, but that was the first time at the Opera House. Um, uh, and on, on from there, you know. Yeah. And the late David Page was, was in that as well. So this notion of it was a coming together of a whole lot of talents, really interesting people to make that show happen. And... That's, the, that's almost the beginning points of saying, why a musical? I remember talking to Nick about, I wanted there to be um, Ursula Jovic's character, Pearl, that at the end of Act One, there was a, ha things had to turn. It mm. couldn't stay happy and go lucky all the time. And the turn, and I naturally went to a world where Pearl is, is behind, is left behind in the city after dark, behind the boundary streets, and is attacked and raped so that her pregnancy in the second act. Uh, and yep. Nick was saying, look, that is the predictable way to go. That is, we know that, but it also robs her of agency. It robs her of all these things. And the audience are put into a world where we go, oh, you know. And so he actually turned it around and said, at the end of act one, what if the other love story, which was a, a black white love story, oh, long story, um, so the, there's a lead black man who's come back from war, who meets the, the daughter, the white daughter of, a, of the local priest, uh, and they meet and fall in love. But it's, it's a love that shouldn't be allowed because mm. of black-white relations at the time. Similarly, Ursula Jovic's character falls in love with a traveling salesman, a white fellow, and um, he, he, well, gammon man, he, he yeah. kind of says everything to her and gets her on his side. And with, meanwhile, we've got Wayne Blair's character, Dave Daylight, who's the kind of the puppy who, who will do anything for her. Yeah. And in the end, the second, the second act is where Ursula's character is pregnant and 
the the traveling salesman just dumps her and runs and dave daylight picks up the pieces uh and similarly that at the end of act one the 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 white um uh, priest's daughter um is discovered kissing the black man and that's the end of act one anyone goes whoa what's going to happen now as opposed to being in a predictable state of mind yeah and even though we know there are repercussions they are kept light enough that the audience stay in the story Mm. that the last thing you want to do is the audience to feel number one they know what the outcome is number two because also the white priest was always very um supportive of indigenous things it set up this thing you know this persona perhaps oh yeah going oh no it's all good and we should have these dancing together that's all wonderful yeah but not my daughter that's right yeah yeah yeah, yeah. (laughs) not at my backyard no 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 no. that was never part of the agreement yeah yeah well and we don't know that at the end he just at the end of act one they kiss and he goes rose and we go wonder what his response will be and so we're left with the question and nick was always good at this he said you always look to the end of a a play to find out what the most dramatic end could be because then you've got to travel there. And so, like, um, he did the um, editing on Romeo and Juliet I did for Bell Shakespeare Company. And he said, right. And I'm kind of going, oh, how do you cut all these characters down? He said, we just look at the final scene. What do you absolutely need for the final scene? And that tells you everything you need. And so you, then you, you reverse engineer from that how the journey's going to go. And, like, every yeah. new work is like that too. Mm. You go, where is it that you end up? Yeah. And how is that... Where's the most dramatic um, alter position from that? And so when the, the Sunshine Club then went through, you know, and, and this whole notion of going, we cannot end this well. We cannot end by going, oh, we all lived happily ever after because that's not how it worked. Yeah. And the, I remember talking about the sense of going, you know, I remember saying exactly these words going, well, when is the place to do it? Where, how can we, if not now, how can we do it? When can we do it? And so we jump in the play itself, we jump like 50 years into the future and go into a dance dance studio where in fact what looks, well, the same actor plays the two characters and the, the this white woman's dancing to the choreography of a black man. Mm. In this case, because David Page was in the play and playing the lead role, we were inspired by that to say, oh, now's the time if you can actually have um, Stephen Page in charge of Bangara, me kind of working in state theatre companies and doing that kind of stuff, yeah. maybe now's the time that this reconciliation is possible. Mm. And so you you jump from the, the darkest, deepest ripping of the club apart, saying this is outrageous, jumping 50 years to tell the happy ending. Mm. Again, you, you know. Which is an inspiring reach too, isn't it? For someone watching you go, wouldn't that be great? Yeah. Without being too romantic yeah. about and, it. And yeah, and Nick's saying you cannot end on this dark place because you have a responsibility to the people coming to see it. Yeah. You know, it, it is a musical and a musical has to have, well, it doesn't have to have, but it's a different type of musical that if it doesn't have redemption, it doesn't have something that returns you back mm. to, to a place. Anyway, so in, in many ways, Nick is a, a great inspiration for thinking about some of these ideas. And Sunshine Club being the first example of that, which then, you know, pretty much then landed on the sapphires that then put me in things like the the Commonwealth Games, yeah. doing the opening ceremony of both Melbourne and Gold Coast Commonwealth Games, you know, because you're just going, well, 
how do I get a message across in this structure? And some would say I'm a huge sellout because of that too. Like really? there's this notion of how I strategically place myself in a very mainstream environment and then act as, well, I, I keep thinking, I'm hoping I'm acting as the tip of a spear. Through me coming in there, I then bring all these others mm. and hopefully expose them or give them careers or, or, give, uh, or, or enhance their careers or whatever. And so working at the Queensland Theatre Company, one time, 25% of all the actors being employed were Aboriginal actors or Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders, but mostly Aboriginal yeah. actors. So you go, oh, that's, what does that mean? You know, what does it mean in the world? It means another 25% of unemployed people saying, Wesley, no, I'm joking. <laughs> You've set uh, me on this path. No, I'm, I'm uh, being, well, I'm being joking. No, no, but no, no, no I'm but being silly. The sense of yeah. responsibility is huge. Yeah. You know, oh, yeah. You know. And so now being at the Sydney Festival, this idea of, keep talking about Trojan horse, yeah. you go, there's, on a grand scale, I, I go, I make sure that there's an Aboriginal face on the front of a brochure mm. so that you go, well, that's just part of our city. That's part of what we do. Yeah. You make sure that there's Aboriginal languages spoken. You make yeah. sure that the, it's not like others can't do it, but for many, for many, it's difficult for them to do it. I have this thing about what I call the paralysis of integrity, that people are so scared of making a mistake that they never even start. They never even do the hard thing just in case it, they make a mistake. And you go, that, that's not, um, not a philosophy to live your life by. You can't be so worried about making a mistake that you never try. I would much rather, me personally, but also people I, I kind of embrace in a work environment, I'd much rather you try and fail or try and it doesn't work out as exactly what you want so you can learn the lessons to do the next one. Yeah. And that we kind of build over time. In fact, failure for me is just the act of stopping. Mm. If, if you are crushed by it, if you, are, if you no longer have enough faith to go on, that's failure. But if something doesn't go the way you wanted it to go and you go, oh, Jesus, learn this lesson, learn that lesson, how about this, move this around, yeah. you, you just, you just, you're learning skills all the time and that's... Go this way next time, perhaps. Well, the issue is that no two situations are ever the same. Yeah. So I'd say in my 20s, I was idealistic. I was out there. In fact, I think I did some of my best work ever because my ego says I did. Mm. You know, I didn't know what I didn't know. I kind of pushed everything. I pushed it away. I was kind of aggressive at times. I kind of jumped into the middle of things. In my 30s, there was a real sense of going... Um, targeting that energy to go, I want this, I want this opportunity, I want to speak to these people, I want to do this. And I started to make choices about where I placed the experiences and the skills that I'd gained in, in the 10 years in my, in my 20s. In my 40s, there was a real sense of becoming more strategic again, about not about my own personal ambitions, but about how do others come along the way? How, mm. do, you, how do you provide the fertile ground for everyone to grow? Or when a problem would arrive, at my feet, I'd go, right, I've had a similar experience to this in my 30s. I remember what my 20s per 20s <laughs> kind of egotistical asshole would do. <laughs> so you, you, you kind of have reference points to, to, to pick at and go, what about this and this and this and this and this? And you start to problem solve in a way that's not personal. You don't freak out if there's a problem to solve. You start to go, right, how do I deal with this? And I think many careers falter in people's 40s because they don't find the time the energy to to think beyond their, themselves and to think calmly about what's in front of them 
So if I see careers falter all over the point, mm. there's still the kind of gut-wrenching um, nervousness. Mm. You know, um, there's the, the fear still takes over every time you go into, as opposed to your curiosity or your excitement or your, you know. I, I remember, not to interrupt you, but I remember uh, when I was an emerging playwright, Queensland Theatre, we're doing that first musical Ingle Company, we're about to come in and you come around the back and I go, I'm so, so nervous. And you you suggest it, and this still sticks yeah. with me. You said, yeah, but you don't have to be nervous or it was something better than this, but you could just be excited yeah. to see what happens. And, I, and I, yeah. I can say now that I feel like that before something, but it took 10 years, whatever, to lean back on those experiences and go, I'm okay. Let's yeah. just be, let's just embrace it and learn from it. Absolutely. And well, enjoy it for, my my, you know. my my two sayings are, number one, you're only nervous because you care. Yeah. And that's not a bad thing. Yeah. And my other one is that the physical sensation of nervousness is exactly the same physical sensation as excitement. So you just rename it. Yeah. You, you cast it in a positive state and you go, I'm so excited by this. suddenly, you know, the neuro-linguistic programming of that gets you to a different place where a kind of nervousness, you go, well, how do I use it? What do I do with it? Yeah. It's a very human thing. Stepping up in front of how many hundreds of people to perform is not natural. No. Well, but it, then, it, but then it, but it, but it, it's almost, it's an amplification of what is, is normal, which is uh, a group of people, friends and family, sitting around a dinner table or sitting around a campfire, yeah. sharing stories. Yeah. You, you're amplifying that both literally through your voice and your body, but also amplifying the experience to a whole bunch of people. You have to say, these are my friends and family and I am sharing a story with you. Uh, and we, we take what's natural and we make it much bigger. And, and we often active. build up and push them out as opposed to trying to let them in, in yeah. when you're starting out and all that sort of yeah, stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, and I think that's why th there's a number of different fashions in performance. Um, I like to think there's there's two versions. One is the what I call the shiny silver ball, which is so well polished and beautiful that all you can do is watch it passively. You watch it and you admire it for its beauty. Yeah. And then there's the 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 eight-year-old soccer ball that's been kicked around forever. And that as soon as you see it, you have empathy and connection and, and you have your memory of what it was like to kick that ball around, you know, and, and they're just different fashions of work. Mm -hmm. And I've always been, a, you know, the eight-year-old soccer ball. Do I've you think one, is it about the, is the engagement too? Yeah, yeah. But, uh, or people yes. getting a bit into it more as opposed to just being yeah. a bit back? Is you that... can reflect, reflect in it rather than reflect on it. You know, yeah. the, the, the eight-year-old's cricket, uh, uh, soccer, soccer ball. ball is something that you have a physical reaction to. It sits in your, your mirror neuron in a different way and you kind of go, oh, I remember what that's like. And it's rough and ready and has patina and texture and stuff. Whereas the silver ball is so blindingly beautiful. Yeah. But as soon as you touch it and leave a fingerprint on it, it's soiled. Yeah, yeah. You know, so it, it begs you to sit in the dark and just appreciate what it is. So a lot of my work has often been the caster on stage already, they're talking to the audience or they're inter interacting, they're somehow connecting with it. 
And I remember actually Robin Nevin said this once about a play I was doing, and she said, oh, I see a difference between the two of the two performers. I'm very much an actor, but the actors you're working with are very much storytellers. They're not about transforming into someone else. They're about using their body to tell a story. Mm. And I go, yeah. I mean, I, I don't agree you with don't it all. You put the distinction in that way. Yeah, but. but but I can see what she was saying that, too. That for her, it's a demonstration of her transformative skill. Yeah. And she was seeing in these other performers, these Aboriginal performers, that they didn't leave the performance behind on stage, that their life was engaged in the storytelling in a different way. And there's no, I don't think there was a value judgment, just no, it's the just way she was seeing it. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and for me, often um, the best theatre works. Oh, yeah. Emission 3. Here we go. Here we go. Are, are where you, you as an audience member, uh, can't just leave your experience behind. Yeah. You can't just say, wasn't that lovely? Where you have to say, my God, when that moment when this happened, do you remember when this happened? When that happened, I got really amazed all going, oh, where you have to talk about it. That's so the, you're talking about it in a way that you're there and you're still there. Yeah. Like even the language they use is Oh, yeah, yeah. And yeah. you take it with you and, and that you almost have to talk to someone about it. Yeah. Because it was so extraordinary. And I remember one piece I saw, this is Romeo Castellucci's piece, a uh, piece of his, where I then would talk to people and I could recount image by image by image. Uh, I would talk for like 20 minutes about what this play was that I saw because I didn't want to let go of it as yeah. well. It was so kind of burnt on my retina. And what it was about, you know, was open to interpretation and stuff, but I could tell the story that I wanted out of it as well. It was really extraordinary work. Um, and very few pieces are like that, I think. And, and sometimes venues do that as well. Working at Belvoir Street, so Sapphires, at, when we did it in 2004, was at the Melbourne Theatre Company in the Playhouse, and it was really much kind of pushing out, but kind of lots of fun. And then we moved it to Belvoir Street, which a 300-seat theatre kind of wraparound. It was very intimate, and we had to change all the blocking. Mm. Um, but the, it knocked the roof off, you know, and they were, they were right in it, perhaps. Right in the middle of it. And we re-blocked it in ways that really worked as well, so that yeah. they, were, they were in the middle. And so the, the venues can create different relationships. So the venue called to you, in a sense, and you went, oh, there we go. Yeah, da, 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 da. Yeah. yeah, and not being locked into one way of doing it just because that's the way you've done it. Yeah. But to go, oh, to, to reconceive a show. And that was a really radical reconception because the two venues were so different. Mm. But there's something about installing a show that I really like. Um, I often joke that I could, well, not joke, I could, I could live in Tech Week. Uh, if, if someone else, if I was at the beginning of rehearsals and then, you know, pretty much people did, got all the movements, got all the lines down, did all that kind of stuff, and then we came together in the Tech Week, yeah. well, or maybe Tech Fortnight, Tech Month, whatever it might be, <laughs> that we could make the show in the space. I love that. I That's love your that. biggest joy. Yeah. But also there's, it's, it's the moment of no excuses. When you're sitting in that theatre with the lighting and the sound and everything as you want it to be, you then go, that works, that doesn't, how about this, how about move this, let's cut this. I remember one, one thing, because we had a, a good bump in for Sapphires with MTC and Simon Phillips saying, I, was, I kept saying, Simon, I'm having trouble moving from this scene to that scene and this transition's really bothering me and I need to do this. And he watched it in a run and said, just cut it. <laughs> so in the middle of teching, you know, and he goes, you just don't need that. 
you know, sure, you miss a little bit of narrative. And it was um, all about air travel and them on the plane going to Vietnam for the first time and their kind of excitement. And there were three costume changes within five minutes. Yeah. This revolve was going around, the set coming in, the set going out. And he said, you just don't need to know what, bang, I know what I'm going to do. And we cut it. We cut all the dialogue, didn't need it. We just had the sound of an aeroplane landing. And the audience went there with it. They knew yeah. what we, the, all the signifiers were there. Yeah. And the we went straight from, yes, we'll go, to then we're there. And that thing about Nick Enright saying, just leave them with questions. Don't give them answers. Don't answer everything. Yeah. The, you know, that movie Sixth Sense where yeah. you go. Yeah. You, you just keep rolling with it because no one's telling you that it's not like that. Yeah. Um, and, and plays can do that so easily. A little bit of sound, a little bit of lighting, potentially no text to do it because text suddenly lives in a very intellectual kind of mindset. You know, words will engage your mind, whereas sounds and uh, songs or things will engage a different kind of part of you mm. or visual images and things. And so, you know, the whole idea of someone just saying, oh, you don't need that, gave you permission to just get rid of it. And sitting in a tech week for me is like that, where you're just going, no excuses, that's not working. That's no one's fault. I don't have to sit in the guilt of going, fuck, I should have seen that earlier. Yeah, yeah. Or yeah. I wish that actor was better or that costume change just needs to get quicker. Yeah. You go, it's not going to improve. You've, you've, you've hammered this one. Yeah. So something needs to change. Uh, I remember um, being taught this about visual artists where if you're looking at a canvas and you think that it's not working, you take your hand and you put it over the thing you love the most on the canvas and imagine the whole piece without that that little piece there. Maybe you love the way you've done the hands or yeah. this flower is gorgeous or whatever. And you realize that, in fact, that's the thing holding you back, that you're fixating on something because you love it. You're trying to keep it so bad. Absolutely. And you just go, oh, fuck it off. Yeah. Put, or put or that, it changes a little bit, but I just was so stubborn to yeah. not want to move it a yeah, fraction yeah. to yeah. the left. Or, yeah. in fact, it just needs to be... You know, tone it down. It needs three fingers, not five. Absolutely. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> but this fear that you, that every idea you have has to land into a work. I mean, my advice to to new writers, new directors, is to go, yes, you want layers, you want complexity, you want multiple things kind of landing in together. Yes, you always want that. I got that. But in fact, you have to work out whether you're going to fit all those ideas into this one show. Like the, the most confident directors are the ones who go, that's for another show. I'll put that over there. You know, I, I feel, especially first-time directors, will throw every idea they've ever had at a play, at a mm. script, at a production, because they fear they'll never have another one. Mm. Whereas if you can have the confidence to go, what's right for this version of this production, these artists, these um, the, this script, these audiences, this space, and and be focused on what that experience is between the performer and the audience. If you keep focusing on that, going back to that whole idea of catharsis, if you focus on that and be truly a slave to that environment, that's that, that connection, then it doesn't matter if you've got the best idea in the world. If it doesn't fit into that relationship, that's, you've got to park it over the side a bit. Yeah. And, and those directors who just go, no, I won't let go of this, you go, well then you are fearful. Yeah. What are you doing? Yeah. What are you doing? If you don't think about, number one, this is Nick Enright. God, Nick's in my brain so much. But Nick's saying, 
if the actor can't do it eight times a week, then it can't be done. Yeah. Like if you're asking them to, to do something eight times a week, but they don't understand what they're saying, they can't get the words out, change the words. If the audience, if the audience don't feel connected to what's going on, if they, they lose it, if they lose interest or whatever, that's not their fault. It's your responsibility as the writer or director or, or conceiver of the work. You have to be mindful of that. And I like the idea of sitting in previews in particular. And uh, it's a bit wacko, but I watch the show from all the different perspectives of the people in the audience. So I go, what does that 13-year-old girl do? What's this 60-year-old man thinking why, are, why is this couple using their date night to come to this? What's going on? And watching the show from those perspectives and going, oh, I just lost the 13-year-old girl. She wasn't interested in that. Ah, is that a problem? No, maybe not. That's all right. We've got everyone else. So you just start to work out how you hone the show by what you expect others around you to do. Mm. And in many ways, I'm a great uh, proponent of not having many industry nights. Because industry nights, people people hoop and holler and love it all and stuff like that. But in fact, they're not the audience. Yeah. And opening night is such an artificial experience. You know, that it's that thing where you go, how many times have you been to, I know, Belvoir Street opening where people leap to their feet and then the very next night people have a mediocre applause to it. Yeah. And you go, because you want to know what the real people are, not the... You know, oh, there's my friend. I yeah, see him totally. on stage, and you know, that it's the show on uh, on a Sunday afternoon after a huge week where, da, 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 yeah, da. yeah, yeah, and they're paying money to be there. Jesus Christ, you know, yeah. it's not the freebies that your mates have got. Yeah, <laughs> and and so when people say, oh no, my friends think that was really good, you go, well, your friends aren't paying the paying the price for the ticket, are they? And they love you. Mm. They're they're just like the friends and family go to a high school musical. You could be doing shit work up there, but they're still going to love you. That's no use for you. You're never going to be great if you think that's the measure. Yeah. And the industry is so full of that. And, you know, and rightly so. We all understand how hard it is. We understand how difficult it is to get up there and do the work. But ultimately, you've got to listen to the audiences that are, that are giving you, well, number one, they're hard-earned money. But number two, they're giving you honest responses to what you're doing. And you have to make decisions. There's some directors who love counting the number of people who walk out of a right. show. And I go, yeah, but that says something. They severed the relationship before anyone was finished. You know, you've damaged that relationship somehow. And that's no great. That's not a great thing. It, that's just as dangerous as someone who gives a standing ovation out of pity. Yeah. discussion that I haven't really formed. But can I say this? I think that uh, I, I take from the the world uh, an Aboriginal viewpoint, yeah. which is 
that the artist is given time and space to be the best artist they can be while the tribe, you know, hunts and houses them and looks after them. Yeah. And so the responsibility we have to the tribe is to be as connected as possible. And that if your community, uh, and however you define your community, is experiencing heartache, tragedy, um, uh, the, the need to think about some big ideas, it is your responsibility of the art, as the artist to go into them. Not in the literal way, yeah. but to go into those ideas and say, how am I a servant to my community? How am I a servant to my audience? And not just to go, what's my egotistical position? Mm. What do I think? But actually go, how do I have big ears and can hear what, what the landscape's going to tell me uh, at the moment? And so, you know, I, I look at, in this case, Aboriginal storytelling and just go, oh, there are big issues that need to be talked about. How do we build a piece of theatre around that? Um, and it may not be the panacea for all the ills, but how am I contributing to the debate and the discussion? So something we're doing at the Sydney Festival just last, just gone, the whole idea of Australia Day and stuff, and we did this vigil. So the, the day before, on the 25th of January, we, we said from dusk of the 25th till dawn of the 26th, you could come and sit vigil and think about what it was like the day before the arrival of the First Fleet to place yourself in the position of empathy and compassion for Aboriginal people in that way. And it was, a, you know, it was an art piece, basically. It was a kind of a, a happening, a, a sit-in. 4,000 people turned up mm -hmm. because the community wants to deal with it in a way. And so it's our job to find the right vessels from which those debates and discussions can be had. And I think there's a real danger to think that art is only a distraction from your life. It can be, but everything is a Trojan horse. Everything is a Trojan horse. So the notion of if someone's writing a brand new musical and it's all going to be about what, you know, happy-go-lucky, whatever. Oh, uh, Captain Cook in his 250th anniversary <laughs> of coming here. You know, you want to write something about that? Sure. But know that on that ship you can place a whole range of different discussions and debates. Mm. That even as that, that, that ship is rolling in and Captain Cook is singing his opening song, what is it like to have a chorus of Aboriginal people that sing behind him? You know, like you, you, yeah. can, you, can, you can deal with things in, in very obtuse and tangential ways because you know the community wants to talk about it but may not be ready to, to deal with it head on. So you have to go around the edges and talk in different ways. I mean, anyway, there's so many different ways of thinking about it. Yeah. But ultimately, the artist has to be connected to their community. And any artist who doesn't find ways of connecting with the community is ultimately just going to keep reflecting themselves and what they believe. And I think you have to um, inform your opinions of the world a bit more. This has been Ramble City, a podcast of conversations with interesting people musing on art, life and their careers, created and produced by Old Fashioned Media. To hear more and discover additional material from today's episode, visit ofm.com. Mm -hmm.